So I'm writing another book. I know you probably think that this is the same as the last episode where I talked about how I was writing another book, but I'm writing another, another book. Just like any time I'm here by myself, I'm not going to have the intro section. The whole thing might as well be the same thing, right? What am I? Introduce myself? That's ridiculous. But as ever, my name is Dr. J.P.B. Gerald. I'm the host of this show on standardized English, which we talk about the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. Um, there is a Patreon. There's a link there. Nobody really donates to it. That's fine. But if you would like to support the work, um, great. Anyway, so for those... No one listening to this doesn't know this, but... Um, my audience is actually growing a little bit for the first time in a while. I guess I put out a consistently strong run of episodes, and maybe I'm ruining it by doing two episodes by myself here, but I don't know. Oh, well. Anyway, so in the last episode, I was talking about how I wanted to do different things, and I wanted to reach a different audience, right? But like... You know, there is the doctor in front of my name. And now the doctor in front of my name gives me some cachet with certain regular people, regular not being a pejorative, and because I do think, frankly, that academics are not regular in a lot of bad ways. Um, anyway, so there are people out in the world who respect me more because of that. But academics absolutely only respect me because of that, right? Uh, for better or mostly worse. If I would like to keep the doctor relevant, I do have to do academic stuff every so often. Now, one way to do that is what I've already agreed to do. I'm teaching a class in the spring, doing some adjuncting. I do that every so often. Every so often, I'm going to have to not do it because I got too much to do, as you're about to hear. But I like to do it at least once a year, just teach class, right? Keeps me sharp because my main job is about pedagogy. But I don't want to tell people how to instruct if I'm not instructing, you know? Anyway. So, um, I told you all last time how I'm writing a non-academic book for K-12 teachers about neurodivergent students of color, right? Which is called Embracing the Exceptions, Meeting the Needs of Neurodivergent Students of Color. And uh, it is now November 30th, as you hear this, although I'm recording this in October. By the time you hear this, I will have started recording interviews for that book. Maybe I did all of them. Um, I'm not interviewing very many people because I'm not trying to be comprehensive. It's just different options. It's just enough different groups, enough different people's stories that if you are a neurodivergent student of color, you should hear yourself in one of them. I can't cover everything. And if I try to cover everything, I will fail. Um, so that's that one. And let me tell you, the, the, the contract for that one is definitely better than the academic contracts. But let me tell you another thing. So right around the exact same time that I was submitting that to um, the broader publisher, right? I also submitted my original, I, so remember I told you in the last episode that I submitted this idea to them about examining racism in different parts of the world and how it affected education, or maybe I didn't say this, and the, the editor said he liked it, great idea, but it's too academic, so I put it in my back pocket, and then I went on with my month and I was nervous about the outcome of my award, which I did not win, um, and then... You know, I was sad and I was kind of mad. Not that no, no, nobody did anything wrong, but I just sort of, it stressed me out and I wish that I won. But anyway, 
then I said, the only way I'm going to get over this is by starting a new project, right? And so I didn't know if people would respond. I finally submitted that one that I told you about, and then that one was accepted. And then I submitted that original idea about um, whiteness in different places. And as I do, I just sort of added language into it, right? It was going to be about whiteness and racism in different parts of the world, right? And how it manifests. But now instead of just being like, and how that impacts um, education, it'll be how it impacts language education and language ideologies, right? And they liked it. So I was back with my original publisher, Multilingual Matters. And although I made fun of academic publishers last time, I will say they did give me a better deal this time without me even trying. Uh, it's uh, twice as good, actually. So I guess the more I continue to be successful, the more people will give me. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of academics, they hope to write one book. And, you know, when I said that I wanted to write books, plural, as a not freshman, my first year doctoral studies, I don't know if I really believe myself. You know what I'm saying? But now, provided I succeed at this, which is a challenge um, because I have to write two books in about a year uh, and a few months. Uh, I've planned a lot of stuff out already. I already have the articles I'm going to cite. And I'm not saying I won't find any more um, for both books. And I'm in the middle of the interviews right now. And then I'll take a couple of weeks, but not too long, honestly, to do data analysis because this is not a full-on research study, right? I'm, I'm just sort of compiling stories and putting the stories in the right places. And, uh, you know, I'm calling on my network. A lot of the people who will be in this second book are people who've been on this show before. Some of them may choose to use pseudonyms because they'll feel a little weird saying what they're saying publicly, but that's a lot of them are people you've heard on here. So the first book is the thing I mentioned. The second book, or I guess my third book, um, which my contract has me finishing that manuscript as of March 1st, 2025, which is a weird time to think about. Um, whereas my, manus my, my contract for the first book has me finishing it December 1st, 2024. No, I am not going to wait until December 2nd to start this. Uh, my plan is to do the writing. I'm going to do the introductions for both books by the end of January, and then I'm going to set the book I'm about to describe to you aside, and then I'm going to work on the Embracing the Exceptions book first, get that manuscript cranked out, um, and see if I can get a chapter a week done, maybe. There's 13 chapters in a conclusion, and a, so maybe 15 weeks, right? Which would be February, March, April, May, mid-June. A little bit of editing, but it's a manuscript, so they're gonna it's going to be edited anyway. Uh, and then if I'm able to get this done in, in, in the six months, then, then I can start on the second one in August, and then I'll absolutely be able to get this one done in the six months leading up to March, in the seven months leading up to March 1st. So my, my goal is to do each one in six months. Remember the first book I wrote in seven months, and I was going much slower, and I also was writing a dissertation, and I was in a much worse place. So what is this third book about? So it's called because I think I'm funny, 15 Shades of White. Ha ha ha. The idea being, I'm going to take 15 locations, summer countries, summer regions, right? Summer, you know, I couldn't just do the entire United States. Being in the United States, I had to pick regions. So I got a chapter that'll be on New England, a chapter on the Midwest, a chapter on California, a chapter on the Pacific Northwest, a chapter on Florida, but not what you think, and a chapter on New York. 
right? That's a lot in the United States, but it's where I live. Um, chapter on the UK. This is not the order, by the way. Uh, chapter on um, South Korea and Japan, which I know are not the same thing, but I'm talking about the EFL industry, which I've already talked about in my first book, but I want to dig into the racism that exists over there. Because um, in the first book, it was about how racism in general impacts the EFL industry. So I'll talk about that again, but in a slightly different angle. Uh, I got a chapter on, I will have a chapter on Algeria. Um, I'll have a chapter on Canada. Chapter on Mexico. I think that's all of them. I don't remember how many um, that is. You can you can count if you would like to. Uh, Italy. I have a chapter on Italy, right? Mostly because I have. Oh, and South Africa. I, I mostly because I know people from these places, right? Or who are either from or have worked in or have lived in these places. Uh, it's easy enough to find articles. One. I only need a few each time. Each of these chapters is going to be pretty short, like four thousand words uh, on each place. And this is an academic book, but I'm not really going to be. You know, this is something that's a little bit new, right? What the point of this book is? I'm going to talk about each place. Talk about the perception of race and racism in the place, okay? Right? Not just the demographics, which is easy to just put the numbers up, but like when you think, when people in the place think of race and racism, what do they think of? Right? When people from outside of the place come there, what do they think of? What do they think of race and racism? And then what's it actually like? from the people's perspective there, because there haven't been that many articles from in each of these places about the racism people experienced, at least not in journals and all that, right? So I'm just going to ask people who know the place. And it's not to pretend that they are the only experts, but again, if you're writing a newspaper article, that's all you do, right? You go talk to people who, who say stuff and they, and they know stuff. These, this and the first one are, are kind of more like uh, long form journalism than they are about, than they are, you know, traditional, um, traditional qualitative studies they're qualitative in that they are narrative inquiry to some extent but it's really i'm just getting people's perspectives because there's no one fact of racism right you could go get the facts and say this percentage of people have jobs in this and all that sure i guess but um the point being it's uh it's all about perspectives you know and the idea is to call into question because i still think i know i'm in the united states but our media is so powerful and our experience with slavery is so central to our history our past and present in the sense that unlike the uk which i will get into uh and a lot of western europe although there were some exceptions to this much of the participation in the slave trade was on different shores right yes some people came but and most, much of the exploitation of indigenous people was on different shores. People certainly had very, very racist views of, for example, India or Africa or, you know, the Caribbean or whatever, right? And we'll get into that in the book. But because we don't have the descendants of slaves or they don't have the descendants of their enslaved people living there in such large numbers that, that we do in the United States, right? And then you add in other groups that we have treat we, the Americans have treated horribly, it's just so visceral here. Not only that, and but like we know that there's racism in other places. We look at all the European, you know, right wing nonsense, right? Like, you know, it's everywhere. Um, so we'll talk about that. It's not going to be too much about politics, but um, or, or sorry, it's not going to be about electoral politics. Everything's about politics. Um, so I'll talk about that. 
And I'll talk about then, you know, how does this impact language education, right? How does this impact language ideologies, right? Um, and, you know, hopefully these people have something interesting to say. Um, and then I'll offer some thoughts on where to, where to go from there in that particular place, right? Unlike my first book, I'm not an expert on, I mean, with my first book, I wasn't really an expert on the entire industry. I only had my own story. So I dipped into my own story a lot, especially when I didn't think I had anything to say. I would go into my own story because it would resonate. Now, my story will still come up because it's the way I write. I write first person. I have no choice. And at the beginning in the intro and so forth. But most of this stuff is going to be based on what the people I interviewed tell me. Right? Most of this stuff is not going to be things that I can call into question or, or dispute. Right. Frankly, I'm using the people I interview to dispute the, the quote unquote facts about racism and so forth. Um, and I think this will be interesting because there are a lot of people who've on, who very, no one will have been to all of the places in the book. Right. And certainly not a white person having been in all the places. You know, I'm specifically choosing to talk to mostly white people, not because I think that they're experts on racism more than people of color, but because, first of all, if my first, if my second book is, there'll be more pain in there from people of color experiencing racism. In this one, I kind of want to get the, the skinny on what white people say to each other about racism in these places. And no matter how much I do this work, I cannot be in all white spaces, right? Or all majoritized spaces, you know, unless I'm in a place where mostly black people, I guess. Um, so like I want, for example, one of my, my people who's been on this podcast to to tell me like, what is it like in the Midwest when people talk about racism? How do they deny it? Right. I don't necessarily want to hear like behind closed doors. They're saying the N word like I kind of know that. And also, I don't know if I have a lot of friends who spend time with people behind closed doors who say the N word. So that's not really going to show up very often. That's the type of stuff that you hear from people when people are revealing racism that's different in different places. OK, so. You know. That's one of the things that we uh, want to go into in the book. Now, this is an academic book. And, you know, I said in my previous episode, I was really like, what do I even write next? Because the first book is kind of a furious little book about the industry and the whiteness at the top of it. Well... Let's say this book comes out 2026, three and a half years after my first one, which if I didn't have another book in between would seem really long, but I do. And also I'm still featured in a whole bunch of other books, right? Well, the industry hasn't changed. <laughs> uh, it hasn't changed now, a year after my book came out, and it will not have changed two and a half years from now when the next book comes out. So what do I even do? I can't keep writing the same book, right? Um, I can mention that the industry hasn't changed when I write this book, but I really want to talk about the different cultures and stuff like that. Because here's the thing. Everyone is taught racism or anti-racism, but like, no, there's no such thing as not learning 
this. The studies show the children recognize differences in, in phenotype, I should say, right? What we would classify as race when they're like six months old. It doesn't mean noticing it means racism. In fact, if you try to pretend you don't notice it, that is racism. Um, but then it's up to the world around them to teach them that these differences are either neutral or good. Right? And unfortunately, the world teaches us, no matter whether you're in the United States or not, that these differences are bad. So I want to hammer in the, the point I started making in my first book, that this stuff is global. That if you try to, you know, not talk about the race aspect of things, um, you're going to leave a part of the story out. And I want to talk about what we can do about it in different places. Because when I tell people what we need to do in a certain place in, in the United States or in New York or whatever, that may not be applicable in a, in a South Korea or a Japan, right? You know? When I tell people what the, you know, I tell people in the United, in New York, that it bothers me when people choose, quote unquote, for the good schools or the house they can afford to move to a, a like 90% white area, especially in the, like a New York area where you got to try really hard to find a place that white, right? You either have to try really hard or you have to be willfully ignorant about it. Either way, it says something. But if you live in Finland, which is another one of the chapters, which I forgot to say, you know, it don't really mean anything for an area to be 90% white. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean there's race. There isn't racism there, right? That's the point, right? Like my point is that like in the United States, if you especially live in a metro area that is diverse, which almost every metro area is diverse, right? In fact, the the... There are particular cities that aren't particularly diverse, but the metro area still has people. Like, for example, like Fort Worth is not very diverse, but Dallas is, right? Not like Dallas, but <laughs> but the point is, like, all these big cities, like, it's just where the people go for the jobs and everything, right? This has always been the case. So, you know, um, but if you go find the place in that that's really not diverse depends on where you are as to what that means. If you live in a Dallas and you move to an area that's not diverse, it simply might even just mean that the place is more expensive. That doesn't make it okay because we don't need to talk about Texas, which I did, don't really feel like having a chapter about because you, you kind of know what I'm going to say. Um, but if you live in a New York or a DC or in Atlanta and you find a place that just happens to have all white people, it means something. But if you're in a country where the country is 90 plus percent what, what we would classify as white, then how do you live in an anti-racist way, right? How do you do this work such that the systems are challenged when like, I'm not saying it's just a coincidence that everybody in a particular place is white. And let's be clear, one of the things I'm going to bring up with Finland is that like there is an entire indigenous population there that people like to pretend doesn't exist. <clears throat> That's part of what was coming up in Frozen. Although I believe that was supposed to be Norway. Uh, but like, the you know, Scandinavia, you know, white people didn't just show up there and they, and they claimed it. Like we act like we know that Columbus and the Vikings and all that, when they came here, there were people here. We know that. Right. 
Well, they didn't just show up in Scandinavia either, right? There were people there before them, right? There is, I would venture to say that there is no place to which white people are indigenous because humans started out with melanin and you had to move to a different place to have enough generations to be white, right? Obviously, you could be white and indigenous if you have one white parent. You, you know what I mean, okay, people? You know what I mean, right? We were not create, created, I'm not religious, but we, we didn't come out or we didn't evolve. Whatever we consider the, the line between when we were a, a, a different species to, you know, our species, we certainly didn't come out you know, lacking in melanin because we came from creatures that had melanin. So I'm not trying to be all conspiratorial. Like you all understand, right? But the first people were, whether you believe the first people were in Ethiopia or in the Middle East or whatever, because there's some disputes about where the oldest skulls are, but it's most likely Ethiopia. Yeah, it's pretty hot there. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. All this is to say, this conversation I think is going to be interesting I'm going to be more of a travel, not traveling, because I'll be sitting at my computer, but like a culturally traveling reporter, right? If I had all the money in the world, that I would do this book by going places and, and asking people, but I can't do that to my kid, and I don't have the money to do that. I will say, like, you know, maybe the uh, this goes well enough, right, between this book, which I get, like I said, the contract is better. It's not a lot of money, but who knows how many it'll sell. Uh... And the other book, because the, pre- the, pe- the non-academic publisher who I met for the first time a week ago, and again, a week ago from me recording this in mid-October, not a week ago from you listening to this at the end of November or early December, um, told me, you know, you don't have to put everything in your book. I wonder if she gathered that I tend to put every idea into my book. I did put every idea I had into my first book at the time because I didn't know if, I'd, if people would like it and I didn't know if I'd have another chance. I said, I got to put everything in here. I think, by the way, that that is part of the reason that people say that um, artists are most creative in their first couple of albums, let's just say, or books. is because there's no guarantee that there will be more. So you better get it all in there, right? So then you get people whose first albums or whatever are really, really creative because no one comes out with the first album saying, I'm going to make the most generic thing that's going to sell a bunch, right? Uh, you, you just put your best foot forward creativity-wise. So my first book is obviously always going to be perhaps my most unique because there is a, a tension of, am I ever going to get another chance? Is this book even going to come out? I didn't even know. Maybe they would, I thought they would just hate it, Right? So I don't feel that anymore. And one thing I was worried about when I was thinking about follow-up projects is, yes, I wanted a different audience, and that's what the second book will accomplish. But also, like, if I'm going back to the academic well, like, what's, 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 what's the driving tension, right? People say that, that artists, and I'm not necessarily calling myself an artist, but I do think anyone who's a writer is an artist to some extent, Right? It is art, even if it's not art. You know what I'm saying? Like, even if it's not, like, nonfiction is still art, even if it's not. My point is, I believe that I write nonfiction books as opposed to considering them purely academic. Academic just being the subgenre of nonfiction that I write. Like, I write nonfiction books, you know? Um, That doesn't make it not art, though. People win awards for these things, obviously. Mine was nominated. I didn't win. But, like, you know? So, uh, 
the artistry, the creativity that goes into these things. And a lot of academic books have no creativity on purpose, which is a problem. Um, people think the whole starving artist thing, right? Like you got to be desperate in order for your best work to come out, right? Or there's something, you know, beautiful about, you can hear, there's a subway in the background. Look, unless and until I move, and I am planning to move in, in the spring, not because I want to, but because it's probably the best idea, we can get into it but honestly if we get the house i want i'll actually have my own office so i don't have to record in my bedroom anymore which will be nice unfortunately by the time i get to that i will be i'll be done with all the interviews for the books so it is what it is but it's not the books you know the audio doesn't matter because it's just transcripts right anyway so People think that starving artist thing is like a beautiful thing and it's like, oh man, you know, it's so romantic to, to think about. Um, and I believe that, you know, the best art comes from people who are really in, you know, in traumatic circumstances or whatever. And I'm not saying there can't be great art that comes out of that. I would argue that perhaps the best art that comes out of it isn't coming directly from the trauma, but from someone's ability to harness it and process it in, an, in a coherent way. Because sometimes, you know, when people need treatment, it, it hasn't been figured out yet, so it doesn't really come out right, but whatever. It, it, the, the point I'm really trying to make is that I was worried that because when I wrote the first book, I got noticed in the summer of 2020 by the publisher and at the same time, I almost lost my job, right? This was 2020. This is pandemic, high pandemic. And I'm not trying to pretend the pandemic's over, but I guess it, whether something is a pandemic or not is like a political decision, right? So I guess it's over in that sense. COVID isn't over. It's never going to be over. It's just, when you think about it, here we go with the tangent, right? The Spanish flu from 1918 turned into all the flus that we still have, right? So it's just going to be like that. I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying it is. This is how it is. Um, so 2020, height pandemic, right? Hadn't seen anybody in person in forever except for long distant walks or something like that. It's just me and my wife and my son and my dog. That's the only thing I'm doing except I'm doing things online and I'm whatever. I almost lost my job at that time. I mentioned this several times. So I'm in this feeling where like my son is going to be, I could have gone on my wife's insurance, right? But think about the fact that they don't know that, right? They don't know what kind of job my wife has. So these people were threatening basically to take me and my infant off of insurance, right? I'm not saying no one should ever be fired. And we can talk, it's not good that these things are tied to employment. This is not my point. My point is, so I was in a situation where these people were so fed up with me and my work that they were like, they didn't express any concern about that, right? And I know that I'm not saying that's their job, but they were so fed up with me and they were angry at me that they were going to kick, like, forget me, whatever, right? But like, they were going to kick my infant off of insurance as far as they knew. The fact that I knew that I could have gone to my wife's insurance is one thing. Right. And then like if that had happened. 
I have no idea what would have happened, man. What kind of job would I have gotten? You know? I never would have gotten the diagnosis because I wouldn't have had the insurance to do it. Well, I didn't actually, was, I should pay for that out of pocket. But um, I only was able to get the, to do that when I calmed down. You know, and like what happened is they started noticing errors in my work. And then for reasons I don't understand, they started getting mad. So they would make comments on everything. And the comments would be all caps. And, you know, they were just genuinely yelling at me in the comments. I didn't really understand why it mattered so much. Like, I would go back and try to fix it, and then something would happen. And, like, I would keep doing these things. And, you know, I finally figured out the problem. You know, I just had to spend twice as much time on it. I wasn't able to... It was just not good. It was not a good situation. Um, it's hard to think about, honestly. Because that could have very easily gone much worse. So anyway, that's when I got the book contract. <laughs> and I, and I, by the time I started writing the book, I knew I wasn't going to lose my job. I had sort of rescued it. They sort of let my probation thing expire, Right. Um, because they did need me, um, and I think they saw that I was improving, um, and, you know, they, uh, guys, hard to think about, because it was this time three years ago that I was under that probation. I don't like to go back there. Uh, so... Yeah, I drank too much. Like, it was a lot of... Not because... It was not... It wasn't a good situation. And I started writing the first book there. I had just come out of the desperate situation, and I was just sort of paranoid and angry and stressed all the time. And that's when I started writing that book. And there's a lot of that in there. Even if it's not about that. Because I wasn't even doing language stuff at the time. You know... But I worried that I wouldn't have that fire this time, you know? That it wouldn't be as, as, as visceral. And that's actually not true. It's not desperation now. I feel some vindication because my ideas were right and my belief in my ability to get my ideas out has borne out and you know I'm just I feel like with ADHD and the fact that I now know that all of the I almost lost my job and it was because of ADHD. Like I was making small errors because of ADHD and, and them being angry at me is something that happens a lot to people who have ADHD. You know, the fact that I, um,
the fact that I got to a good place doesn't mean I don't have to think about things anymore. I've turned off a lot of things that stress me out. I don't scroll Twitter or whatever anymore. Um, I have it, so I have the account for just for promotional sake. And now when I write, there's still a passion, right? Now the passion is I've got an actual platform. I need to make sure people listen to me. I'm not trying to save myself anymore. Now I have a chance to do something for, for people, whether it's the neurodivergent book or the other book that I ho will hopefully be used to educate. Um, and I teach students who like the way that I approach things. And, you know, I kind of won, right? And people say, well, that's what happens to artists, right? They get to the success point and then they, they, they give up or there's nothing left for them to say. And it's like, ideally, what you do at that point is you start to make some noise, right? That first book was about the industry, but it was really about me. And the neurodivergent book will be partially about me, although a lot of it's about the, the, the system of education. But with this third book, this next academic book, where I'm kind of playing with house money, right? And my whole point is to just really push, I now don't have to feel that that nervousness that it'll that it'll even be published or that I'll never get another one or that people won't listen, right? I have a name and people know what they're getting when I say stuff and I have to live up to it. And I, I feel that productive tension, right? Anybody can write one well, on anybody, but most people you could write one book, but can you write two good ones? And now in my with what I have to do, can I write three good ones? So that's enough, you know? That's enough energy to get me over the hump. Whenever I'm writing a long project, it's, there's, it's like a rolling a boulder up a hill and it's like you got to roll it up the hill and it's really hard and then you get to the top of the hill and then it's easy, right? So wherever that hill is, because for me, with the first book, the hill was the first section, right? That was the part with the most research and the most like argument it was the sweatiest part. Right? I had to try so hard to make the arguments connect. And then when I got to the second part, when I was just clowning on the language teaching industry that part was easy and it's by far the funniest part of the book and then the third part is more earnest and i think that both of these books will be more like that where i was sharing other people's stories and explaining how i came up with the things that i did right it's three very distinct parts these books won't be like that they're just chapters right there's no part one part two part three this time um but like now I got to make up for the 30 years where I didn't believe or people didn't tell me that what I had to say was worthwhile, right? I have to make it count now that I have a chance, you know? I got a foot in the door with the first book and now I got to make sure if I get these things done that like people will never forget what I have to say. That's what I'm trying to do with these this, this next round of books. And... Um, I want that to be the case no matter what happens in the world is that by the time these books come out and in the time after that, by the time I'm 40, which if things go correctly, then the third book would come out just before I turn 40, that like I could basically show up and write a book whenever I want to for the years after that. I got a lot more I want to say, you know. The, these are supposed to be the guarantors, right? Having a, a critical but not financial success the first time 
maybe I have a critical and financial success with the second book. And the third one would still be critical because academic books aren't really financial successes. Um, and then once I have the guarantor, as they call it on the Blank Check podcast, I can kind of do what I want professionally for the future. So that's what this is about this time. Um, and I'll still be here uh, every two weeks. Um, you'll hear about the books as they get written, which means you're not going to hear anything for a little while because I'm not going to start writing them until February, and then I always record these episodes early. Uh, but yeah, uh, I support. Uh, thanks to all of you for supporting me because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have written the first book if I didn't have the podcast because the podcast helped me form my ideas, right? And there's an entire episode of the podcast, which is a chapter, right? There's the heretical whiteness episode, which is from January 2020, which is funny to think about. Like my, my, my son was about to be born is what I think about then. Um, and a lot of stuff hadn't happened. So when I think about that, that, ep- that episode, that theory basically is an entire, is like the climactic chapter of my first book. So episodes you hear here will end up in the books. So I hope that you all get them. They will all be priced human, right? I don't do academic book prices. I will not do it. It's not going to be some $90 book. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that's what I have to say. All right.